0: to the choir master, and like every psalm in this book, a psalm of David, the king. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, Yahweh delivers him. Yahweh protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. Yahweh sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health, or more literally, all of his bed you turn when he is sick. As for me, verse 4, I said, O Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, my man of peace, in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me, that my enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me in my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. I wonder if you've ever found yourself listening to a piece of music and not quite being able to tell what the emotion is that it's stirring up inside you. There's a feeling our kids call happy-sad when they cry at a story, but not exactly in a bad way. Well, one particular obsession of the technical commentaries is trying to pin down each psalm to a specific genre. But when it comes to this final song of book one, it gets rather fun to watch them all falling apart. It's a bit like visiting someone who obsessively tidies their kitchen, who's got a place for everything, and handing them a spork and waiting to see what drawer they'll put it away in. What is this psalm? What is that feeling? Is it lament, or is it worship? Is it a cry of pain, or a song of joy? And part of the reason for that is that Psalm 41 is doing more work in our Bibles than it might seem if you just tore out this page from your Bible and read it on its own. Cast your mind back, all the way back just over three years now to when we began working through this prayer book. And it opened in a very distinctive way, didn't it? "Someone blessed is the man. The man who store up God's law in his heart and walked in his ways. The man revealed in Psalm 2 as the righteous king of God's people. And now fast forward to the end, and how does the final psalm begin? Blessed is the one who considers the lowly. Can you hear how it echoes the start of the book? It ends in verse 13, like the final psalm of every book in the Psalter. It ends with doxology, with praise to the God of grace. You see, this is self-consciously closing off the story, a story that all through these 41 prayers has seen Israel's king battling for the kingdom, battling to take the throne, battling in the face of enemies and lies, battling under the weight of sickness and sin, and battling to do good by his people through all of that It's a battle that has been deeply painful and lonely and costly. So yes, the the guts of this psalm take us back into that deep personal sorrow. But they do it from a particular perspective. It's a battle that is over. A battle that's been won. As David sings this song, he's looking back, isn't he? It's the report of a prayer that he cried out then in the teeth of suffering and betrayal. A prayer that brings back all the great themes of his struggle through book one. But the psalm, if you look carefully, it begins and it ends with what he learned in that fight. And it's the beginning and the ending which change the tone of the whole thing. The great theme of the psalm and the great theme of this whole book is God's delight in his King. The love for his Christ that he proved when everything was on the line. A love that is meant to give us, his people, tremendous confidence as we follow in his footsteps. It's a song about a dark and painful battle, but it's a song of praise, a song reveling in three good, joyful things, the good God, the good King, and the good news. First, in verses 1 to 3, we meet the good God. Nothing says more about us than the things we care for. Someone might have all sorts of things in common with you. He went to a similar school. He wears similar clothes, belongs to the same church, the same denomination. But if you find out that he spends every waking moment of his free time pulling the wings off daddy longlegs, he's probably someone you're going to give a wide berth to, isn't he? Well, the opening of the psalm lets us in on what it is that absorbs God's heart, what does he care for? Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In other words, God blesses those who share his care. Do you remember David's last words of amazement at the end of the psalm before this? As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. God is a God who cares for the poor and the needy, Now, this is a slightly less common word for the poor. It's a word that stresses their insignificance, their powerlessness. God cares for the lowly and the grubby and the helpless, for people who can't offer anything to him. And he blesses the person who does the same, who feels for them. Not just the person who promises them thoughts and prayers and a text message. It's more than that, isn't it? He's asking us to do more than give to charity. He's asking us to consider them. That implies thoughtfulness, understanding. If we're going to care for the weak in the way that God cares for them, we need to be full of understanding, to pour wisdom and thought into their situation. That's what it means to consider, to wrestle with what really are the great needs of our society and what might actually help. Now, we need to be careful in a passage like this not to distort the message through our own lens of politics. Christianity is not a faith that belongs to any one political answer to that problem, any one political persuasion. It's a great pity that in some parts of the world you get the impression that Christianity belongs to the right wing. And close at home, it often feels like the opposite, doesn't it? It belongs to the left wing. Well, this is not a call to either one of those. Firstly, because the poor, the lowly, they're not a narrow group. This isn't identity politics. The poor includes the poor in spirit, the oppressed, the unborn. It can't mean less than caring for the financially poor, but we can't limit it to that. We're going to see in just a moment what it would mean for God's king to care for the needy what it was that he recognized was the real great need of helpless humanity. So we shouldn't capture this then to push our own political agenda. It's deeper than that, but it is saying that a care for the poor and the helpless should be a real, deep concern for every Christian. It should be something that weighs on every believer's heart. And there are people who will find that they think deeply about human need, some of us here, and it leads them to passionately reject socialism as the answer, while other Christians in this room will embrace it because they've thought long and hard about it. They've come to a different conclusion. We'll differ, won't we, on the most loving way to put that care into action. But all of us at least have to care and to think hard and feel strongly about the need we see in our world. God does. See, do you see how this is the same blessing that we saw in Psalm 1 put in a tangible way? That was about loving God and treasuring his law. Here is what his law does to you, what it does to your concerns. If you know that God, if you've known his care for you, you know that what the world tells you is not true. My success and my happiness is not all down to my own talent and hard work. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's down to the grace of a good God, his common kindness to me as a human being, and his special grace to me in Christ. I haven't earned my place in this world, and so I can't treat others as if they need to do what I never did. But this good God, he blesses the man who shares his care. He fills him with joy and with life. And it is one man. Notice it's singular here, just like it was in Psalm 1, because he's going to be embodied for us once again with a specific, particular example. The good king, a king who cares for the helpless, just like God cares for them. There are two twin troubles this man will face in verses two and three. Twin troubles that God will uphold him and protect him through in love. And they're the very troubles King David battled with throughout this book enemies and illness. And so the promise, first of all, is for God's caring king. One day, verse two, the battle will be won and the land will be his. And as he fights that fight, his God will sustain him. Even verse 3, even as he lies on his sickbed, God will nurse him back to life, just as we saw God doing for him last week. It's one of the most beautiful pictures there of the resurrection that I've come across. The Hebrew of that verse is really tricky, but the image in verse 3 is of someone turning over the sheets for him as he lies on his deathbed, changing his deathbed into a place of happiness and joy. That is what God does for his caring son as tenderly, lovingly, he nurses his body back to life. What it looks like to be blessed by the caring God, which brings us, secondly, from the good God to the good King. Verses 4-10 to show us God's Christ, his King, as he put the promise of verse 1 to the test in his own day of trouble, the caring king in need of a caring God. It's bracketed off for us in verses 4 and 10 by a repeated plea. Do you see that? The king prays to God for grace at the beginning and the end. And as he cries out to God in those two pleas, he's bearing two things. He's bearing sin and he's bearing betrayal. Heal my soul, verse 4, for I have sinned against you. You see, the sickness here is the same one he's been carrying for these last few psalms. It's his suffering under God's judgments as he bears the wages of sin. And verse 10, raise me up that I might repay those who betrayed me. So God's king is facing both of those twin troubles we met at the start, illness and enemies the very things that God promises to sustain the person he blesses through. And the big question then is whether the man praying this prayer is that person. Is this someone who shares God's heart for the helpless? Is this the kind of person God will answer and God will bless? And the more we read on into his suffering over these verses, the more we realize that the answer must be, Yes. The suffering that he's praying from here isn't any old human suffering. No, this man is suffering in love. He's suffering because he's a king after God's own heart. Look at the great hope of his enemies in verse 5. It's the one thing they wanted right through these psalms, isn't it? When will he die and his name perish? When will the wretched name of Jesus be forgotten? They hated David, who wrote this psalm, because they hated the God he represented. They wanted him forgotten. You might wonder why there has been so much in these psalms about his enemies. To us, it all sometimes seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? A bit melodramatic. Our lives aren't really like that. But the world has a particular reason to hate God's king. Jim Phillip is so insightful here. Here's how he explains the level of hostility in these prayers. The truth is, you cannot make a stand for God without making enemies. One never really sees what a man is at heart until he's stirred in opposition to Christ and the things of the kingdom. Even natural friendships, he writes, and natural friendliness are no proof against the hate that arises in the human heart when the gospel stirs it. And that is exactly what we see as these verses unfold. His enemies who hate him because he's God's king, they feign friendship and concern in verse six. But the truth is they are feasting their hearts on his misfortunes gathering up the gossip and spreading it abroad, whispering behind his back while he's down, delighting, verse 8, in the rumors that whatever deadly cup has been poured over the king, he will never rise again. This Good Friday, the president of Humanists UK sent out a tweet that managed to go viral, I think simply because it was so unbelievably smug, and satisfied with its ability to be rude about Christianity on the holiest day of the year, here's what she said. Just a little reminder today, dead people don't come back to life. Well, that was every enemy of God's king, wasn't it? That is exactly what they were saying in glee as he cried out this prayer. And they're the contrast, aren't they, with verse 1, how not to care for the weak and the poor. Here is the caring king, suddenly in need of care himself, the king becoming the lowly one, the helpless one, and there's not a soul to pity him. Even the one he trusted, verse 9, even his friend joins in the rebellion. It's the verse Jesus quoted in John's Gospel on the night he was betrayed. Even the one who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, what was going through his mind, do you think, as the Lord Jesus looked at his friend Judas and thought of this psalm? What was he trying to remind himself of at his hour of greatest need? Surely he was wrapping his heart around the promise of this psalm. It wasn't just an expression of his grief. He was staying himself on these truths. As the agony of that betrayal and the ugliness of the sin he was going to bear and the lonely road ahead of him began to bite, he needed to grab hold of some sort of comfort that would keep him going until the end. And so he thought of a psalm which reminded him that God cares the one who cares for the lowly. It was that care which drove him to the cross, wasn't it? Jesus' compassion for the poor and the lowly throughout his life was the very same compassion which drove him to lay down his life for them. He did it all because he cares deeply about you, about the helpless, in a way that is full of understanding and full of wisdom about what it is you most need. There's no divide in Jesus between social compassion and eternal compassion. Both of those were products of the same love, the same understanding of the human plight. And so the king who cared for his people, he didn't just send us thoughts and prayers. He didn't just wash our feet or buy us food parcels. He faced our great needs. He did all of those things. And he faced our greatest need, our eternal separation from a holy God. And verse four, he identified with us in our sin and he did whatever it took to rescue us from it. And so the man full of pity faced his day of trouble with no one to pity him. And with just the promise of verse 1 to cling on to the good king, crying out to a good God. And finally, verses 11 to 13, the good news. Now, there is so much good news in this psalm, isn't there? But the best news of all comes at the end. It is good news that we have a king who cares But here is the best thing. God delights in that son, and he upholds him forever. By this I know that you delight in me, that you wiped the smile off the enemy's face when you raised me up from the jaws of death. And verse 12, that in your love for me, you upheld me through all of it and brought me to be with you forever and ever don't let anyone ever tell you that the Old Testament knew nothing of resurrection. (laughs) David's great hope as he prayed these words, it was more than a temporary earthly recovery, wasn't it? His hope was that God would uphold him in his integrity, a whole person, body and soul, and that in his mercy, his sin would be forgiven and the relationship with his God restored and that he would spend eternity at the side of the father he loved. The hope we saw realized in the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. When God proved to the world just how deeply he delights in his son. When he showed us all that Jesus Christ is the king who cares, the king who deserves his eternal blessing. Now, why is that the best news of all. Well, just look at how the psalm closes. It's not the conclusion only to this psalm. It's the conclusion to every single one of the king's prayers throughout this book. And as so often, he ends by bringing us into his song. He isn't just my God. He's our God, the God of Israel. And all of you can say amen to my praise. One old preacher put it like this. It's as if every one of us is invited with those last two words to add our signature to the end of this book. Amen. So it is good news for us that God delights in his caring king because of the way that God deals with human beings. He deals with us in covenant. We don't, each one of us, stand on our own two feet before God. We don't pray to him as individual, private citizens. I'd be a stupid man if I ended my prayers, Lord, I ask it all in Rupert's name, because I have someone so much better to ask through. God deals with us through our representative. Once that was old, rebellious Father Adam, and then for a time when this was written For the people of Israel, their representative was David, their Old Testament Messiah. And now for us and for all of time, our covenant king is the Lord Jesus, his great son, the king in whom he delights, the king who fought the good fight, which we've been following in miniature through all of these psalms. And now the battle is won. The cross is conquered and the kingdom is his. And he has been set in God's presence forever. And so do you see why it is such good news that our king fills God with pride? The measure of God's delight in Jesus, his caring king, is the measure of his delight in you. The measure of God's love and pride in Jesus Is the measure of his love for you as he listens to your prayers. The measure of his loyal faithfulness to Jesus is the measure of his faithfulness to you. If there was sustaining love to be had in God for his son Jesus while he bore our sin and our sorrow, then there is just the same sustaining love in God for you, his adopted children he will hold your hand when you need it, and pardon your sin, and turn your sheets as you lie in deepest need, and bring you at last to be with him forever. So the last prayer of this book, it looks back over a sad and painful battle, but it's a happy song, isn't it? A song about a God who kept his promises for the son he loves, And a song meant to give us confidence as we follow Jesus in his love and his care for the lowly. Confidence in the pleasure God takes in us as we walk with him. Do you see how it works? It means there is no battle you ever have to face, no slander you will ever suffer, no cross you will ever have to bear that you won't bear as a child who he loves, and who he swears by heaven and earth to uphold to the end and then into eternity. Because your place is by his side. He wants you there. He purchased you to be there. Forever and ever, he bled for you so that you could be with him by his father. And we get to close this first book then of his prayers by blessing the God of grace and saying, amen, it is true. It's a truth I will stake my hope and happiness on. The good God is God, and the good King is King, and every word of it is true. Let's bow our heads and give him thanks. Father, we praise you forever, because you who need nothing are a God full of love and care for the needy and the helpless. We praise you for revealing that love in the face of Jesus Christ, the good King who cared for us to death itself. We praise you for showing to all the world how deeply you delight in him by raising him from the dead and setting him on the highest of thrones. And we pray that your delight for us in him would fill us with confidence to walk in his footsteps, to love and care about and understand the need that we see all around us. Help us to know as we follow him that you will be there to uphold us when our own time of need comes along. For we ask it all through our King, who you love. Amen.